You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Moutier, and I'm here today with Matt Heinz, president at Heinz Marketing. How are you doing today, Matt? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you. A little bit cold in the UK. Where, where are you based there? Where are you doing the podcast from? I am outside of Seattle, so not super warm here either. It's, we don't get too crazy cold in the winter, but it's definitely deep into fall here. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're getting to it. It's kind of dark at 3 p.m. and starting mm-hmm. to be chilly. So it's, we're going to find refuge at the pub soon. So it's, it's going to be. There you okay. go. <laughs> so today with you, Matt, we will be talking about the, the B2B marketing prediction for 2022. So super yeah. exciting topic. But before we get into the, the subject, could you just give a quick introduction to yourself as well as your company, of course, Heinz Marketing? Yeah, no, pleasure to be here. My name is Matt Heinz. been doing B2B sales and marketing for 20 plus years. Heinz Marketing in pub speak. If we were in a crowded, noisy pub, I would tell you that we help companies sell stuff. We work with companies that have complex sales cycles and help them create predictable, sustainable, repeatable pipeline development and growth. Excellent. Wow, it sounds very similar to what we do, but so 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 very keen to 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 discuss in more details. Looking at 2022 now, we are we are in the planning season, right? Everybody is mm-hmm. planning how much yeah, money yeah. do I need? Let's speak to the C- CFO. Yeah. And I think this year is slightly different because hey, how many people will come at the in-person event that we used to do and get a lot of lead from, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So things have been changing a little bit over the last 18 months. Hopefully yeah. things will go back to normal next year in 2022. Mm-hmm. But from your perspective, Matt, what do you think are the, the main trends or trends that we can expect in 2022? A couple of things. I think they're def- I'm seeing a higher percent of spend on revenue technology. So sales and marketing tools, recognizing that we don't just need tools to do campaigns, but increasingly there are platforms that are helping companies manage their data, better understand the data they have and take make use of that data. So you don't necessarily need a bigger media spend. You need better insights to know what to say to the right prospect at the right time and then to coordinate that effort across channels as well as across customer-facing teams. So we're seeing a greater emphasis on those tools as well as the systems and the people to, to manage them. I'm also seeing a continued shift, and we've seen this for years now, but a continued shift from things that you buy to things that you create. We're seeing more and more companies lean into the idea of becoming and creating their own media channel to where they don't have to pay the, the tax of renting attention, that they can sort of create and own attention by you know moving from being interruptive in an advertising format to being irresistible as a source of content and insights. So I think that the balance between buy versus create is changing in favor of create in a lot of organizations as well. Okay. So 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 if, so if, if I rephrase that, the first element around the inside, the data, is technically to be a little bit more pertinent when you engage with 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 your end user or your your could be your customers that you are marketing to. It could be it could be net new net new customers or net new prospects. Sorry. Would you associate that with a bit more of a, an account-based type of shift, so being more targeted, more of the sniper approach versus the machine gun? Yeah, I mean, it's being more precise, both at a at, at a contact level as well as at an account level, right? And so, I think you know, every at the end of the day, you, you, the logo you want on the wall is the company that's going to sign, right? Like you're trying to sign. If you're in B two B, your 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 targets are accounts. But the building will never answer your email. The logo will never attend a demo. We still have to talk to people, right? And so inherently, our communication 
is still one to one. It's still people to people. So we can't get we can't change that. But I think understanding that both at an individual as well as an account level, that there's a deeper level of insight, intent signals, and data that can that can tell you out of an addressable market that maybe everyone in your industry. There's a percent of that addressable market that are your ideal customer, target customers based on a certain set of criteria. And there's a further subset of those ideal customers, again, ideal accounts that are ready to engage with you right now. They're exhibiting signals that indicate they have a problem that you can help solve. They may or may not know that they have a problem. They may or may, or may not see those signals themselves. Mm. So this is my this is why I say data is the missing link for a lot of these companies. And we're seeing many, many invest in this now already and continue to invest in it for 2022 is how do I use my insights to figure out the precise companies that are ready for my message, that are ready for my engagement. So I'm not sending out 10,000 direct mails at a time. I'm sending 18 this week and 14 next week and 22 the next week to precisely the right people with the right message at the right time. That's what data and the systems behind the data can allow for us. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, this is what we should have done from day one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, well, sure. The, I mean, but, but a, I think we didn't. Uh, I mean, some of this is brand new technology, right? I mean, so, and so there's a lot of emerging technology that's making this possible, and that technology requires a different way of operating marketing. I mean, we're just finally in B two B getting to the idea for companies outside of SaaS that marketing can be a revenue driver of the business. That sure. marketing can actually sort of contribute to pipeline and not just do arts and crafts. And, and I think historically, you've also got the idea that like to do demand or whether you're doing account based or lead based to do demand, you just go buy leads, right? Whether you buy campaigns or you do a booth at the show or you sponsor a webinar, that this is what marketing does is we buy space and convert that into leads. And I think increasingly we're seeing again, like buy versus create. You can create that great content. You can create the insights. You can create the value. And then figure out through the data and your tools and your systems which of those prospects need it right now. Yeah, that makes that makes pure sense. I appreciate that. But so you mentioned a few technologies, and we don't want to promote anyone here. But you mentioned a few technologies that are like emerging technologies. Would you mind sharing like a couple of, of interesting platforms that you've seen recently that you believe are, are actually helping some of your clients or or, or friends or whoever you are working with to, to actually achieve that sort of better data insights, more pertinence in the targeting and technically better response rate, I guess, at the end of it. Yeah. I mean, I would say there's a couple things. I mean, there's a company called Caliber Mind that basically takes input from a bunch of different sources and does the sort of the munging of to understand like what those different combined sources mean and then what you know you should do next. And it can give instruction to your outbound systems on when to when and what to say. There's a company called Near that is doing some really interesting work on data intelligence. Similarly, but it's sort of an embedded system that will look across all of your systems, across your product, across your CRM, across your marketing automation, and give you some of those insights to, to know how to sort of create the right message to the right person at the right time. Also, I would just say sort of simple systems like Crossbeam, right? I mean, Crossbeam is a partner management tool that allows you with trusted partners to see immediately where there's overlap between across your customers, across your prospects, across your target account lists. And it's allowing for companies to have, to, it's giving you the capacity and the insight to have a more coordinated approach, a more value-based approach to, to prospects, to joint prospects, to joint customers. So I think, you know, those, those, those are a couple examples in a few different situations of insights that allow for better communication, for better value for buyers and for sellers. Yeah. 
And, and in the second part of the answer that you gave me to, to the initial question about the trend, so kind of the first part was more relevant, more data-driven. The second part was more the, is it the concept of, of community building, like creating communities, having having people that basically come to you to find information. So it's the concept, I guess, of, of giving before you take and you see what people are consuming because you've been giving them information in their domain so much so that, that you know, they, they, they end up becoming a customer is this kind of natural cause. Yeah, I think that's part of it for sure. You know, I think, you know, if you can create, if you can create a place for your customers to get together and share with each other, a place where your folks in your industry, birds of a feather can engage with each other without feeling they're going to get bait and switch pitched. I think that can be hugely valuable. And then, and then, I mean, basically, if you think about this, I mean, we're trying to find the three to 4% of companies in any given industry that have a problem that they're actively pursuing a solution for, right? And so in, 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 in the past, we've just blindly guessed, either blindly guessed at which they are, or sent our message to 100% of people and hope that the 3 or 4% see it and respond, right? And so now if you, if you have a community, if you're hosting the conversation, you're seeing those buying signals play out right in front of you, right? But if you don't have that community, I think you still we have an obligation as marketers to reduce the noise in front of buyers to get only the right message at the right time to people so that we're actually reducing the amount of communication we do. We're reducing the marketing that we're doing, but doing it in a more precise and far more effective way. Like we're not living in a most possible leads at the lowest possible cost scenario right now. You don't win as a marketer by ha- by getting the most possible natural search traffic. I don't care about the most. I care about the best. And so I will take far smaller numbers if those numbers are more effective and efficient for me as a seller, but also are engaging the buyers and the prospects at exactly the moment where I can provide the most value to them. That level of efficiency and precision is about quality, not quantity. And that is that is where we are going. You know, it's it's music to my ears. I've been in a, in a few conversations recently where one of the first questions that I was asked is, how big is your database? <laughs> I was like, how relevant is that? So, well, the bigger your database, the best chance we've got to grab someone, right? And is the concept of we're not in the 80s anymore. We can't just blast email and expect people to come. Yeah. First of all, there is CCPA in the US, there is GDPR in Europe. So we've got a duty of care, as you mentioned. I'm glad to hear you saying that because I don't think people mention that enough. You know, like we have a duty of care of not overwhelming the prospect. And I think the prospect would have more respect for your brand if you just stop sending them newsletters that are absolutely not relevant to them and try, in fact, to, to engage with them or actually ask them, what do you want? How, how can I help you? How can I help you to, to develop your knowledge or whatever? But yeah, I, I always get quite interested by that, that sort of question. And it's, it's when a sales call starts very bad. You're just like, well, we may not be aligned. If you just want lots of data, lots of activities, we can do that. But what we rather do is a more of a sniper approach, lower volume, targeted, be relevant yeah. and pertinent. Okay. Yeah. And try to have a proper conversation. In that conversation, we've got to be honest with the prospect is, hey, look, you know, I want to qualify you as much as you want to qualify me. I don't want to force something on your throat. I just want to understand the timing. Is now a good time to engage or now not a good time to engage? So I guess that's quite straightforward where you've got one buyer in one type of company. Now, I'm sure, Matt, you you come across disruptive technologies and probably some of your, your clients have very disruptive technologies where finding the right guy is the big issue. Right? Who is yeah. the buyer? Who is the actual yeah. person? Because you may have a group of five or six that will be involved, but 
when it comes to it, they may look at each other and say, okay, who's going to take the wallet out? Who's going to take the checkbook and pay for that stuff? And I'd like to understand how you, you know, the two concepts that we discuss, how can they apply to that sort of multi-personal, very complex type of journey? I think, I mean, to simplify it, I think it comes down to consensus and confidence. You know, there may be like a CIO that is going to, that owns the purse strings and budget, and she may be the ultimate decider of whether we're going to buy something. But in most, in the vast majority of modern buying environments, the CIO is relying on her team to help determine what is a priority. Where should we invest? What problems should we be solved? And who can help us solve this? So you're looking for consensus amongst that internal group of buyers, users, influencers to not only decide that there is a problem we're solving, but also to decide which vendor or service or technology is going to work to help with that. So that consensus is important and that consensus is built by sort of addressing confidences. And I think my friend David Kirkdorfer sort of talks about these four confidences that you need to address as you're working through the buying process. Like if you're if you're a seller, I know you've got your discovery call and your demo call and your objection handling call and your proposal stage, but really you're working through a set of confidences. Do we have confidence that this is a big enough priority to solve? Do we have confidence that we have that we have quantified the size of the problem? Do we have confidence that if we solve this problem that it will achieve a certain outcome? Do we have confidence that this vendor in front of us is going to achieve all those things for us, right? So if you think about those as steps of confidence and the consensus building amongst the group that yes, we all agree to those steps of confidence, now you've got yourself a buying journey and yeah. now you've got something you can take back to the CIO and say, we all agree, we all have confidence and we think we're ready to make this decision. If you don't have elements of those, but you've got someone that's just sort of saying, yes, we're going to do this. It's a house on sand that if, you know, if priorities shift, if a pandemic yeah. happens, you know, if you have a bad quarter, all of a sudden, like the deal goes away. Yeah. Basically, you shouldn't be relying on one champion, champion in the organization to push your stuff and sell for you. You should yeah. make sure that you get that consensus by going towards different people. We, we, we actually call that the deep dive at our end. So it's, it's obviously slightly different and, but, but what we tend to do is, okay, what a different type of buyer. There is the guy who is technical. The guy who is technical, what he wants to know, he wants to know, I'm going to have to implement that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Am I going to have to work at the weekend? Am I going to do a night shift to get it going? So we need to speak yeah. to him and have a technical conversation with him. So you know what? No, it's, it's seamless, of course. And everything is fine. Then you've got the probably the, the budget holder that may want to have a little bit of a business case. They may want to speak to customers, what's the return on investment, et cetera, et cetera. So... I think coming back to the content creation that you are speaking about, I think it's also important. Sometimes we see our clients or people in our network just really focusing on one or two key persona, the guy at the top, let's influence the guy at the top. But they forget that the people underneath are the people that can slow down the deal. In fact, if sometimes when it comes from bottom up, it's, yeah. it's where the deal can happen very quickly. So it's, yeah. it's really an art of making sure that the consensus is actually a very, the consensus and the confidence I actually love your answer. I think it's perfect. So I don't know why I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase it, but it's, it was actually, you did it much better than me. No, it's all good. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, you know, you, in an effort to create more simplicity around the buying committee, I think to your point, sometimes we try to say, okay, who really has the power, right? Yeah. And I think you can answer that question, but it's going to be insufficient. Yeah. Like the more people you think about in the organization that have a vested interest in this, the better. 
for example, like there's a company here outside of Seattle that sells a wellness product. It's a, it's a wellness system for companies to sort of introduce and help just increase wellness among their employees. So you think, okay, who's the buyer of that? Well, the CFO is going to have to buy into it. Maybe someone in HR is going to have to buy into it. Maybe there's a benefits manager who's going to have to buy into it. But when we work with this company, our best source of new opportunities was finding the enthusiasts, the people somewhere in the organization who were already always organizing people to like do the, 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 the 5k fun run, right. Or who were the, you know, who were the CrossFit experts who just really were excited about wellness and were looking, were excited about a way to bring that to work, to get them excited about, to have them evangelize it from the inside is going to be far more effective than having my 22 year old SDR sort of pound the phones on that senior person who doesn't want to answer the call. Now listen to Joan from accounting who says this is a good idea. Right. So I think, so I think thinking, and the other, the other thing you have to think about as well is who are the negative influencers in this deal? So we can talk about building consensus and building confidence, but if you go into an organization to say, this isn't, this is a tech product, but you don't need it involved. You can implement it yourself. Well, guess who gets concerned about that pitch? IT, right? Or procurement. Procurement in many companies is the sales prevention department. So if you understand up front, like what is the perspective of procurement at your organization? How do we make sure this deal doesn't get stalled because you need this outcome as much as I need this deal? Understanding all those different members is not only going to help you build consensus, but also help keep your deal on track. That's wonderful. The Coming back a little bit to 2022 and, and your prediction and what you see, I mean, I could get on about that topic of of relevance, pertinence, and how different the complexity. I love it. So trying yeah. to to retain myself a little bit from it. I'd like to get your opinion on events. So uh, with the pandemic, we all know about that. So without going back to it, things have moved online. Things are kind of coming back in person. We've seen a few events being postponed at the last minute, and some of them taking place. People posting yeah. on LinkedIn: Are you going? Are you not going? Is right. it worth going in person? Anyway, I'd, I'd like to get. Your thoughts on that and what, what, what you, what you understand from the market in terms of trends for next year. Do you think events will come back in person? Should we invest in, in virtual? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, events are already back in person. There's plenty of, there's events that are happening on a regular basis. Is everyone comfortable going to them? No. Is, are the events going to look exactly like they did before pandemic? No, of course not. But, you know, we're never going to go through airports the same way we did before you know, 9-11 here in the US, right? And so there's certain things that are going to change forever. Look, we, we've been like, we're, as we record this, we're, you know, we're doing, we got our video on, we're looking at each other. This is a, this is a miraculous technology that we can do this from, you know, you're in the UK, I'm several time zones away and here we are doing this live. Like, so we've had this kind of technology for maybe what, like eight or 10 years. You know, we've been oh, using yeah. Zoom actively for the last couple. We've been meeting face to face as humans for tens of thousands of years at least, right? And so we are predetermined. We are, our brains are hardwired to want to be with and to communicate directly with other people. And so I think that for that reason and others, live events are going to, are going to, are, are already back and will continue to do well. I think that we're seeing an opportunity though to take a set of content and expand its reach and impact through hybrid events. So I think we're going to increasingly see in-person events where, you know, there's certain things you can only get in person, certain value you can only get in person. But whenever a company does, you know, an in-person event, there's always a percent of people that wish they could be there, but for whatever reason can't go, right? It's either money or time or other commitments. So you can't just turn on a webcam and say, we're doing a hybrid event. You're going to have to invest in resources and strategies to make that hybrid work. But I think that's actually going to make events even more important 
for companies. I also think by doing more online events, my hope is that more companies will see the event itself as the middle point and perhaps the bright spot in a broader pl- campaign plan. Like an event is not a campaign. An event is a tactic. And ideally, any event that you've been doing and will do moving forward should have a before, during, and after to help you get maximum ROI. So you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to be more considerate about the events we do. You know, there could be sort of borderline events pre-pandemic that just aren't done or aren't invested in now. And so I think we'll see a little bit of a shake out there, but we will continue to get on planes. We'll continue to get together in person. Maybe maybe events we drive to versus fly to more for a while, but it'll be back. You made me smile again about the the, the events just being like a, a touch point in a, in, a, in a bigger strategy versus just the campaign. You'll be surprised about the amount of time where we're just being contacted to drive bum on sit. And, and mm-hmm. we try to speak to this prospect and say, okay, well, what about if I speak to Matt? He's yeah. really interested by your stuff, but yeah. he can't come to the event. What about I'm speaking to Matt, but your event is in January. He wants to speak to you now. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes we've got people who say, no, we just want Bum on Sets. We just want to pay for Bum on Sets. We just want that. So it's kind of that. So, well, okay, but what we should do is to use it as an excuse to engage. We should, we should yeah. use it as an excuse to show value, to show that we are trying to remain relevant, particularly if it's a company event versus an industry event where you just have a booth and you've got thousands of people there. Yeah. It's, it's about having a story behind it and say, look, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to get together. If you're not there, that's great, but it should not be the only call to action. It should be one of the many call to action. And you should look at it from the prospect perspective because some people don't want to travel. And I think what we see also with some of the feedback we've had is people who don't want to travel for different reasons Obviously, a lot of it is, is, is the pandemic and the risk linked to it. But I think there is more and more people that are becoming sustainably emotionally smart. You know, they, they, they're like, well, I'm going to take a plane to go there just for a couple of days. That's really what I want to do. I mean, I won't stop the plane from going, but my mm. impact is I'd rather do it like that because, you know, it's, it's far, much, far much less of a carbon footprint. So it, it's interesting how, um, how this thing evolved. But c- coming back to the pandemic slightly and just last question, I've asked that question to a few of our guests. Have you seen any other trends that marketers have learned over the course of the pandemic that you will see carrying on in the future, like big changes? Yeah, I, you know, I think that we're certainly seeing an acceleration of channels going, of, of more of the channels being digital. But I yeah. think the companies that are winning right now and the companies that are going to see differentiation in a sea of digital into 2022 are those that figure out how to make digital human. Right. How to make it something that feels interesting. And that look, I mean, as as we record this, and I don't know how much you're gonna do this on video, but like, you know, it's kind of a it's a stormy day. So I didn't go to the office today. You know, I got my piano behind me. I got my little Lego chessboard up here that I play with my kids. I mean, I think we are all people behind, you know, whoever's buying. Like, you know, that CIO that you said like is trying to make decisions, you know, for the company, like is also like thinking about the lacrosse game they gotta take their kids to the next, you know, next day. And sort of is is you know, there were humans behind the B2B and especially in B2B, I think we We've all, I think for a long time, we've just treated ourselves as professionals. Yeah. And I think there's a humanization of B2B. There's a humanization of the B2B sales process. There's a humanization of digital that is going to be a requirement for companies moving forward. And I think it will differentiate those that lean into it and accept some of that personalization, some of humanization, even some of the imperfection that will go along with accepting the humanity of just who we are and how we engage. I'm excited for what that's going to be. And to bring this conversation a little full circle, your ability to do that with the insights you have by taking the data you have about someone, knowing what you do about the whole person, the whole company, and make creating a more impactful message. Don't send me six emails you know, a week at a time over six weeks. 
find a way to get one message to me at the right time with something that is most valuable to me that will show me that you care about my time. That will show me that you're paying attention and leaning into what matters to me. And that'll work for the buyer and the seller. It's true. I mean, the, the humanization of the conversation, one of the things that I realized myself is we always had a lot of clients in the Bay Area. And for mm-hmm. some reason, when I was traveling to San Francisco, a good vast majority of them were like, oh, no, no, we don't need to meet in person. Let's do a Zoom call. But when we used to do the Zoom call back in the days, not a lot of people used to put their camera on. You know, people right. could be on their phone walking and just do the Zoom call. I think now, you know, you actually have that things where people had to come ready in the morning, prepare themselves, and you've got the dog coming, the cat doing, the kids coming, everybody's screaming. You've got the Amazon guy. God, the Amazon guy. I probably had that thousand times. Uh, Amazon yeah. has been doing well, clearly. Everybody gets Amazon delivery all the time. So yeah, I think I think that humanization is quite interesting. And it's something that should have always existed. I think the small talk have always been quite important a little bit in a way because, well, I think it's personal, but obviously I'm a bit more Latin in my way of thinking, being, being French, but I can tell for sure that when, when, you know, French, Spanish, Italian, we don't just buy the product. We, we buy, a, we want to buy the best product, but we also buy from a person. You know, you, you buy from an individual and you, you need yeah. to have a sort of, I find it very difficult to buy something, even if someone's got the best product, but they are just not a nice person. Or I just don't really get on with them. Or I just think that they are a bit too forceful or whatever. It's a bit more difficult for me to just press the button and go for it. I, 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 that link of creating something that is a bit more emotional than just purely commercial is, yeah. has always been very important. And, yeah, I think uh, I agree with you. This is something that we would keep. Now, my last question, because we, we, we're getting to the end and we need to let you go at some point, unfortunately, Matt. My last question to you, and it's maybe like a very wide open one, but where do you think B2B marketers should invest their budget next year? Is Do you have any recommendation for anyone who's listening to us who's just still scratching the back of that, thinking, okay, should I do 20% this, 30% that? Where would you put yours? It's a great question. I, I think the easy answer is, okay, like what number you need to hit next year and what does marketing need to support that number? Like that's the easy thing. And unfortunately, most budgets really sort of just look sort of a year in advance. And if you're only looking a year in advance, you're going to invest in short-term ROI efforts that are going to fill the pipeline immediately. If I sold you or if, if Katarina, if I said, Katarina, I need you to hit your number three years from now, but I don't want to pay the tax of having to rent attention from other places. If I told you, I want you to build a media channel, I want you to build attention and earn attention from our audience, build a community, build the channel, what would you build that may not have sort of a Q1 pipeline ROI right away, but that would become, that would subsidize demand requirements, you know, two, three years from now, and that would create massive competitive differentiation because of how attractive you are, because of how attractive your content is, because of how attractive your community is. I'll tell you, I mean, I think that the companies that have invested in these things, and these don't bear fruit right right away. This isn't weeks, months, this is quarters and years. But if you're going to be around for a while and you want to sort of get from sort of growth phase where you're sort of getting logos to scale phase where you want to grow more efficiently, more profitably, investment in those content channels, investment in that community is a massive payout, but it takes a little bit of courage up front. It takes a different conversation, not just with you, but with your CFO and with your board to say, we have a vision for what this is going to do medium and long-term for the business. Not an easy decision to make. I mean, and, you know, as, as we grow, we're having those investment conversations internally as well. But boy, I mean, I think I look at the companies that are scaling. I look at the companies that are, that don't have to pay the Google tax because the audience is coming to them. 
for questions. Yeah. They're coming to them for insights. That is a very powerful position to be in. The point of the, the CFO and the CEO, I was, uh, I was proven wrong by Katarina about branding, like brand, we need to invest in brands. It's like, now we just, what's the point of that? We just need to do something with campaign results in one month. No, it's got yeah. to be, we need to track it. And brand is something that we invested on. And obviously we didn't track and I had that Eureka moment where one day I went to an event, in fact, meeting with a, with a prospect. And the prospect, was, first thing they told me, he said, well, I've heard about you a lot. In fact, I had three conversations of that nature at that, at that same event. People said, I've heard, I've heard about you a lot through, through the community and I looked at what you do online and everything. And I think we need your services. But really, the question I've got is that I don't know if I can afford them. And that's the sort of thing where you're like, wow, okay, what sort of image have we created here? We've created that image of a premium thing. That's mm-hmm. super cool. People are actually mm-hmm. even questioning your ability to do it. They're questioning their ability to be able to offer themselves the service, if you will. And that probably took 18 months, two years to kick off. Probably a fair few arguments between Katarina and I. She probably, you know, drove back home and swearing at me in her car. <laughs> Just like, with that guy and everything? And then now I've completely changed. So now we, we uh, I mean, obviously just uh, is that technique of understanding that some of the action that you are doing, you need to do it because you don't want a return. You want to, you do it because you want to make an impact to the community, to the people that read it. You know, it's right. like doing the podcast. Do we do the podcast to get to, to, to win business, to get people? No, we don't. We do podcasts because we want to stay at the bleeding edge. We're always interested by the conversation we're having. We have some fantastic guests, people who are great. We make friends out of it. And that's creating a community, a group of people. And we love that. But of yeah. course, there is the knock-on effect of, hey, you know what? I listen to your podcast with Matt. really like the conversation. I'd like to do some business with you, right? But I, I think, and the last point that I would make to, to, to kind of complement what you are saying is that sometimes it's actually better to do something for the right reason, like write mm-hmm. content, do podcasts, whatever, for the right reason versus mm-hmm. trying to do it to generate leads. Leads should come from something that is good. If yes. you focus just on creating the lead, I don't think you create good stuff. You create stuff that are probably not really smart. Well, and this, in, and I'll tell you, I, I, I agree with all of what you're saying. And I think some of this comes down to like, how well can you attribute these longer term investments into pipeline. I mean, like I've had a podcast for five years. Like I don't know everybody that listens to it. I don't know everybody that subscribes to it. Do I believe it's a good part of our content strategy? Yes, absolutely. Do I believe that it is positively impacted perception, trust, credibility, and probably some pipeline? Yeah. Do I track all of that? No. But that just because I can't track it doesn't mean it's not valuable. On the other side, we do, and, and as Katarina knows, like we co-host a CMO group that has grown pretty significantly over the last year and a half. And in that case, like we know exactly who in the CMO group. There is no pitching in the CMO group, quite frankly, candidly. I think some of the CMOs in the group don't actually know that I run a consulting business on the, you know, that, that I have to make payroll on. I think they think I'm just a speaker, or a host of this thing. Fine. So we don't pitch it at all, pitch in there at all. But because we know who's in it and because we have, you know, people that are in it or are in a campaign assigned as a member of the broad, I can see what kind of pipeline comes out of this initiative that I don't pitch at at all. Where like half the members don't even know what my company does. But I can tell you it's my single best contributor to Pipeline in 2021, even though it's something that I'm not pitching at. It's been an investment in community. It's been an investment in content. It's been constantly investing in and protecting the value of the group, which means the opposite of pitching, the opposite of making offers, right? And I'll tell you, I mean, just having seen how that works and having seen the, the explicit economic impact it's had on our business, 
that's why we are doubling down on things like the podcast and LinkedIn content and others, because I know that that impact is happening elsewhere as well. And it is the efficiency of that as a pipeline driver versus where I might have to go pay and rent attention from other people. The gap is significant. Yeah. It's also much more fun to do something you like, I think. Oh, yeah. There's that, too. I mean, and, and back to your comment about sort of, the, it's, you know, you, you, we don't always buy the best or the cheapest. Sometimes we buy from people we enjoy. We buy from people we have a relationship with. And so when you can build a relationship with someone through having interesting conversations, like by having, by, you know, by sort of just, you know, just, you know, being able to talk about off-hour mm-hmm. stuff as well, getting to know the real person behind the CIO, boy, I mean, that is such a competitive differentiator and will lead the deals and, and then you know last point is on, on that one is we have had so many so many so many so many so many prospects coming back to us this year from sales cycles that were a failure in the last two years three years so basically what i'm saying a failure they were not a failure in terms of the, the we didn't win the deal yeah but we had a conversation with a prospect where we pull ourselves from the deal they were not mm-hmm. ready for us we were not ready for them they wanted mm-hmm. something slightly different I think that honesty in the sales cycle is also very, very key. Oh, yeah. I know that we've been speaking very much focusing on the marketing people, but I mean, to all the sales people listening to us, I think you don't, it's very difficult to understand when you are selling and you are under the pressure of a quota that yeah, actually yeah. give a good experience to a prospect and say to a prospect, you know what, Matt, I don't think it's for us. I don't think there is a good fit. I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't think there is a good fit. I might personally believe that we should leave it there. Maybe we speak again in six months. Even sometimes we even give them a list of competitors. And we said, yeah. these are the companies you should go for because you want that sort of business model. We don't offer it. We can't offer it for that and that reason. So we explain. Yeah. However, I know two or three companies that would be my go-to if you want to go to that business model. Mm-hmm. And they do their stuff for a period of time. And when they come back, you know, you create that trust. And I think it's, 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 it's so, so, so important that to have this honest relationship, not just mm-hmm. a commercial relationship, but that honest relationship yeah. is what pays off i think oh, at yeah. least for us when i speak to my sales team we just my sales guy don't need to pick up the phone anymore you know we we have referrals from people who like us we speak to other people and they're not all great but it's about planting good seed you leave yeah. a good experience to people and if yeah. you leave a good experience no matter what the outcome is you get a po you don't get a po it doesn't matter it's a good experience that person will remember that good experience and hopefully when the time is right, come back to you or tell their friends when they are looking for something similar to your stuff that they should go to you because you're not trying to trick them into something. You're just trying to do the right thing for everybody. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, back to sort of relationships and playing the long game. You know, if you're just thinking about this month to month, quarter to quarter, are you going to buy from me now? Are you going to buy from me now? I mean, that's a, look, we all got to hit our number quarter to quarter, right? But I think, you know, the relationships you have with individuals, the relationships you have with organizations are going to go are going to last a very long time. They're going to remember how you treated them. They're going to remember whether you pushed them into the deal they were or weren't ready for. And the way you treat them when they're not ready to buy, the way you treat them when they're not a prospect is going to heavily impact not only how they engage with you when you when they are ready to buy, but also how they tell other people about you. Like one of the lagging indicators of doing this well is seeing that the majority of your referrals come from prospects, not yeah. from customers. If yeah. you have your prospects sending people to you because they're like, well, I haven't used the product yet, but these guys are good. These guys will lean in. These guys do what they say. These guys treat you right. Man, that you that you you know you that that means an awful lot and goes an awful long way. And you know, no matter how digital, no matter how remote, no matter how hybrid we get in 2022 and beyond, like that is going to continue to be critical. 
Yeah, and sometimes prospects even find it a bit weird. You know, when you tell them, look, I'm happy to do another call with you. I'm happy, I know that it's not for us and we won't move forward, but let's do another call so we can speak about your tech stack and everything. I'm happy yeah. to give you advice. They're like, whoa, whoa, are you sure? I'm not sure. Should I take? Yeah, of course. But what are you trying to sell? They, they are like kind of concerned that you're going to try to, f- when actually what you are trying to do is just to be, you're trying, I think being useful is, is what is what's very important. Mm-hmm. But Unfortunately, I mean, we could have carried on forever here, Matt. You know, just, when I come to Seattle, you and I, we need to go for dinner or for a beer because I think we, we, we can have, a, we can have a, a late one speaking about all those things oh, yeah. uh, with a tremendous amount of passion. But um, the question that I ask at this stage of the podcast is every, if everyone wants to carry on the conversation with you, discuss about 2022 and beyond, because, you know, mm-hmm. obviously your answer to me was just not look at 22, but beyond, which is, which is the right one strategy. Or if they want to engage with the company running the payroll for, which I think is also important, and, and they yeah. would like to understand how Ains Marketing could support them in their strategy and their go-to-market, what is the best way to get all of you met? Yeah, thank you for asking. I think um, just Heinz Marketing, H-E-I-N-Z Marketing.com. We got a ton of great content all available for free. Lots of research, lots of benchmark reports, some best practice guides, sort of an ongoing stream of good sort of what we think is good content that we will either we create or we curate content from a lot of other sources. So if you're in B2B sales and marketing, come check it out. Take what you want. But also for me, I'm just Matt, M-A-T-T at Heinz Marketing.com. Any questions, anything I can do for anyone, let me know. Yeah, lots of content on your website. I actually had a, a good look and can say that you, you are drinking your own champagne, not just speaking about it, but doing it for yourself, which is wonderful. It was good an absolute track. pleasure, Matt, to have you on the show today and hope we're going to connect again soon to, to carry on that conversation. We will do it again for sure. Make sure Katarina gets more budget. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, 